He said, to the extent I desire to move through you, you must allow me to cut on the leader's cut. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the leader's cut. Welcome also to 2024. Ayo, this is going to be a wild ride this year. I know lots of people walk around at the beginning of the year and they're like, woo, 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 this is going to be an incredible year. Uh, I, this is going to be a wild ride, 2024. 2023 was uh, wild in and of itself. And 2024, God only knows what's in store for all of us this year. We're going to have some fun talking about this topic that I know some of you, maybe you're not accustomed to uh, conversing about. And so don't just assume that either this episode is for you or not for you based off of the thumbnail and the description. Uh, Because I feel like the Lord gave me a word for you. And here's the word. There's some rooms this year in 2024 God is going to take you into, which are going to seem like you absolutely positively do not belong in them. There's a feeling you may be prone to feel once you're in that room that seems well above where you're qualified to be. Here's what they call it, imposter syndrome. And I want to teach you how to overcome it before it overtakes you. So let's jump in and let's pray and let's expose our hearts to the Lord, allowing the spirit of the living God to cut on us anywhere where our flesh is getting in his way. Spirit of the living God, thank you. Thank you for being so present with us. Thank you for being our guide. Thank you for being the one who cuts on us. Holy Spirit. Would you even now begin to prepare us for the rooms that have been prepared for us? And some of those rooms are going to scare more than we've ever been scared before. So Holy Spirit, would you begin to do the work that must be done in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives so that we can steward every moment and every opportunity and every room you lead us into all throughout this year. Holy Spirit, would you cut on me? There are rooms you're going to ask me to step into this year that I've never stepped into in my life so far. Holy Spirit, would you begin to do the work now to prepare me to be able to steward every moment in each of those rooms? Would you do that for all of us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. All right. Okay. Some of us, we don't even know what imposter syndrome is. So before we jump into uh, today's teaching and the points that come with it, and there's a lot of sub points. We're going to be covering a lot of ground on this one. All right. Because I'm telling you, I feel extremely strongly you're going into those rooms. Now, what happens in those rooms isn't necessarily guaranteed. But what I believe is guaranteed is God is leading you into these rooms. And one of the ways you'll know you're being led into the right rooms is you don't feel qualified to be there. All right. You're going to see that by the end of this teaching. All right. But let's make sure we all have an understanding, a working definition of what imposter syndrome really is. Here's a a decent working definition. 
Imposter syndrome is the internal belief that you are not as competent as others perceive you to be. It's the fear that at any moment you'll be exposed as a fraud. This is a very typical feeling when we step into a room that we deem to be well beyond where we believe we deserve to be. And I will tell you this, I don't think you're doing it right if you don't ever feel this feeling every once in a while. I have felt imposter syndrome knocking at my door. I felt the enemy using it, uh, not just one time or two times, plenty of times. And we'll talk about a few of them just to help you as you navigate yours. But here's the first question I, I want to ask and answer. What is the evidence of imposter syndrome? In other words, how do I know if I struggle with imposter syndrome? What does it look like? Here's the first thing. And so that you know, we're going to be using Moses and Saul, King Saul, a lot throughout this teaching, all right? Because in my opinion, Moses and Saul were two uh, high-level leaders who I personally believe possibly and maybe even probably battled some imposter syndrome throughout their lives. So you're, you're going to see we're going to be all over the map. We're going to be in Moses' life a little bit. We're going to be in King Saul's life a little bit. And we're going to be all up in your business all throughout the teaching, all right? Here's the first evidence I want to talk about uh, of imposter syndrome. You disagree with what God says about you. Now, I could have ended because this, in my opinion, is the strongest. But this is, this is really where Moses and Saul start out. God calls Moses to be a mouthpiece. This is Exodus 4. You can turn there if you want. God calls Moses to be a mouthpiece for the people of God while Moses encounters God in the burning bush. Okay, so get the picture. Here's this holy, holy moment where God has approached, is visiting Moses in a burning bush. And Moses is captivated by the bush. And we forget this is the conversation that goes down at the burning bush. Exodus 4, verse 10, just after God tells Moses, I've created you to be a mouthpiece for my people, listen to how Moses responds. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. This is Moses' response to the God of the universe saying to him, Moses, this is what I handpicked you to do. I'm not asking anybody else to do it. You're him. And Moses responds and says, but I'm not. Okay, this is one of the ways you know you might be prone to battle some imposter syndrome. When you find yourself arguing with God about what you were created to do. Watch in verse 13 how Moses responds. Moses, after God, and we're going to read uh, verses 11 and 12 in a bit, but God goes further and says, hey, I created your mouth. Relax, bro. I'll tell you what to say. Moses still argues with God in verse 13 and says, Lord, please send anyone else. Moses is helping us understand what somebody who underestimates what God can do through them sounds like. Let me tell you what scripture helps us understand as it relates to this conversation. It's fruitless to argue with the father over what fruit he fashioned you 
to produce. I need you to understand this. Jesus talked about this in John. That you were created. You were fashioned to produce a very specific fruit and a very specific measure of that specific fruit. And it is fruitless to argue with your creator about how he created his creation. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9 tells us so. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot, Preston, argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Okay, this is the way the NLT translates this, but I need you to understand what God is teaching us in this passage. Preston, it makes no sense for the pot, the created thing, to say to the potter, the creator of the pot, hey, you're not doing it right. We're seeing this run rampant on the earth. We have people actually changing who they think they are because they think God made them incorrectly. I just want you to think about that. The day in which we live, we have pots taking control in their mind of the pot, looking at the potter and saying, you did it wrong. So I'm going to fix what you messed up. Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? That's God's way of saying, Preston, how stupid would it be for you as the pot to look in my direction as the perfect potter and say, you messed it up. Look at this right here. You messed it up, God. This is what Moses is saying to God. God, I know what you're telling me you created me to do, but you messed it up. So please send someone better at this than me. You know, you might be prone to battle some imposter syndrome when you argue with God, your creator, about how you were created, who you were created to be, and what you were created to do. I've done this before. All right? So if, if that's you, don't, don't beat yourself up. You're in good company. All of us have. When God told me to come to Scottsdale, my response was, send somebody else. I can't do that. It's the Robert Morrises of the world that do that, not the Preston Morrisons. And here's what I learned about our creator. If he created you for something, he'll be unrelenting until you find yourself doing that something. But one of the ways I know I'm battling some imposter syndrome, some I don't belong here syndrome, some I'm not qualified for this syndrome is when I argue with God about what he created me to do. Here's the second thing that I know a little bit about. The second way you know you may be prone to some imposter syndrome is you idolize hiding. Let's flip over to Saul. And if you were in Exodus 4, put a marker there. We'll be back. But flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'll give you the backstory. Saul is chosen to be the first king of Israel. And the way they arrive, uh, God chooses them, but the way publicly they arrive at this is uh, they start with the tribes. They get it down to the tribe of Benjamin. Then within the tribe of Benjamin, uh, they go to clans and then to families. 
All right. And that's where you pick up in 1 Samuel 10, verse 21. Then he brought each family, Samuel, brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord, and the family of the Matrites was chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen, important word, from among them, God chosen. But when they looked for Saul, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, where is he? And the Lord replied, I love this. He's hiding among the baggage. <laughs> Here's, God had already spoken through Samuel that Saul was going to be king. Saul is now chosen before the people to be king. And what is Saul doing even though God had chosen him to be king? Saul is hiding. Now let's talk about, because we, we talk about hiding, and, and I want to give you a different way to see a portion of hiding. Because there's a measure of hiding that is obedient. When God says hide, you hide. But there's another side of hiding. When fear runs rampant, hiding is typically the response. So there's a good side of hiding, but then there's a bad side of hiding. Let me say it another way. Hiding is an unhealthy person's solution for not being exposed. I personally think Saul was aware of himself in this moment. It's not necessarily a bad thing. This is not just any king of Israel. This is the first king of Israel. And Saul knows where he's off. Saul knows where he's not qualified to be king. He didn't even know what a king looks like because Israel hadn't had one. And his perspective apparently was, hey, rather than be exposed for not being ready to be king, here's what I'll do. I'll hide. Because what can't be seen cannot be exposed. Hey, let me, let me show you a different side of that coin. What is not dealt with will disqualify you. So if there's something in you and you feel uh, a season of promotion happening, and, but you feel like you're not ready, or there's something deep within you that you know is off, that you haven't addressed, and, and so your response was, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to hide uh, until this gets better because uh, this will disqualify me. Okay, listen, what you deal with privately cannot disqualify you publicly. If you'll deal with it before anybody knows about it, it can't disqualify you. Let me say it another way. Deal with what could disqualify you and the devil won't have an open door to help you fall. One of Satan's favorite human habits, I'm convinced, is hiding. More specifically, hiding things. Think about Adam and Eve's initial response to the wrong they had done. What did they do? They hid from God. I wonder if, if there's a lot more to that story that we don't see recorded in the garden. I wonder if the serpent wasn't taunting Adam and Eve and showing them how dirty they were. And so they went and hid. Who knows? I'm, I know the enemies talk to me like that. I'm pretty sure the enemies talk like, like that to you, where you do something wrong and the enemy comes up. Oh, you're, you're dirty. You're disgusting. You know what you need to do? You need to hide. Now, why does Satan love it when we hide when we're not supposed to? 
because hiding is another way of creating distance between us and God. Now, on the, the King Saul front, it appears from my vantage point, Saul convinced himself, I could be exposed. If I become king, all the eyes of the nation will be on me and they will see this, this thing that's been off for years. Uh, this is my, my perspective, obviously. We don't see this in the text, uh, but I'm just viewing through the lens of my own life and others that I've seen lit, navigate this path. What if Saul was saying, no, all the eyes of the nation will be on me. I know this, this thing in me is off. And if all the eyes of the nation are on me, I will be exposed before them all. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide. I'm just going to hide. Listen, that's only an unhealthy person's solution to not being exposed. A healthy person says, you know what? While I have the time during this season of preparation that God has me in, I'm going to deal with what could disqualify me. That way I don't have to hide it when God promotes me and exalts me. Okay, here's the third evidence uh, that you may be prone to battle some imposter syndrome from time to time. Number three, hiding, uh, sorry, you overcompensate for your weaknesses. I just want you to think about this. And if you're ever guilty of doing this, all right? And we're going to go back to Moses. Now we're in Numbers chapter 20. But let me set up this moment where I believe Moses wrongly tries to overcompensate for his weakness. And it caused him to disobey. And the penalty for it was huge. In this moment in Numbers 20, the people are griping. They're griping to God. They're griping to Moses and Aaron. And they're saying, we, we should just go back to Egypt. We should have never left. There's no water. We're dying of thirst. This is ridiculous. Now, remember, this is the second time this has happened. And they're griping. God's already supernaturally proven he can provide water. They're still griping. And watch what happens in this exchange between Moses and God and then Moses and the people. Numbers chapter 20, verse 6. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people who were griping and went to the entrance of the tabernacle. They sought the Lord, where they fell face down on the ground, off to a great start. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. Notice he says, speak to the rock. Second time he told him to do this. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Now remember, the people were griping. So it's possible Moses, in response to their griping, was carrying some fr frustration that he didn't give to the Lord. So watch how he responds. Listen, you rebels, Moses shouted. Hey, remember, when God's given you an assignment to speak something specific, you never need to shout it. 
When a word comes from God, you can whisper it because that word's going to have power whether you whisper it or whether you shout it. Moses screams, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water from this rock? God had already told him he was going to do it. Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed out. Get this picture. God wanted to use Moses' weakness. Remember, Moses told the Lord, you want me to be a mouthpiece for the people of God? I'm not a good speaker. That's my weakness, in other words. Isn't it amazing how God most often would rather use our weakness than our strength? Why? It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by his spirit. If everything I do is by my strength, then his spirit isn't going to get credit or glory for what I do. God loves to use our weaknesses. But when you struggle with imposter syndrome, here's what you do. You're too aware of your weaknesses and oftentimes will try and overcompensate for your weakness. So think about it. The people are griping and Moses knows his weakness is talking. Moses believes the people need a stern rebuke, but he feels his weakness is talking. So imagine in his head, he's like, listen, these people need a whooping, but I'm not good at giving verbal whoopings. So all I'm going to say is, listen, you rebels. And then I'm, I'm just going to, in anger and strength, I'm going to strike that rock twice. Remember what God had told him to do. Speak to it. Use your weakness. Not what you perceive to be your strength. Remember, this isn't the first time Moses thought his strength was his strength. He'd killed somebody. He'd killed somebody by this point. Remember the fight he broke up and ended up murdering in the midst of that fight? For some reason, Moses was prone to overcompensate for his weakness. In that moment, in that fight, Moses should have walked up and used the power of diplomacy. He had been raised in Pharaoh's house. He understood diplomacy. But rather than rely on his weakness and God to be strong in his weakness, what did Moses do? Moses overcompensated and just took strength into his own hand and he killed a man. And in this moment, Moses took the staff into his own hand, his strength, struck the rock twice. Now let me read you verse 12. God's response to Moses disobedient overcompensation. Number 20, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, in other words, the way I asked you to, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. Here's what you have to remember. When you overcompensate for your weakness, using your perceived strength, it's always going to cost you more than it benefits you. Moses missed out on leading the people into the promised land. And one of the reasons was he thought the right move. Even though God told him to lead with his weakness, Moses thought the right move was to lead in his perceived strength. I will tell you many a time, in my past, where I was so aware of my weakness 
that I overcompensated with what I believe to be my strength. This is one of the ways you know. If you're not comfortable walking into a room in perceived weakness or literal weakness, and you feel you always have to walk into a room with strength or even perceived strength, you are struggling with imposter syndrome. It isn't until you're comfortable walking into a room, not needing to be noticed, not needing to be heard from, not needing to do anything, not needing any credit, when you can just walk in and nothing happen. You know you're on the other side of imposter syndrome, but when you walk into a room and think you need to lead with your strength, quite possibly one of the biggest reasons is deep down you think you're an imposter. And so you got to hide it. You got to hide your weakness by showing or over showing your strength. Here's the second question about imposter syndrome. Why do we experience imposter syndrome? A couple of answers to this question. Here's the first one. Because we look at ourselves the wrong way. You think you're an imposter because you're not looking at yourself right. And this is where I have fun sitting down and mentoring. No matter how young or old you are, I love this side of mentoring. I love it when you see yourself the wrong way. Because one of my favorite things to do is be seated across the table from someone who gets a revelation from God, not me, on how God sees them. But one of the reasons the enemy tries to come at you to get you fixated on how you see you is the more you think about how you see you or are seen by others, the less you will be aware of how God sees you. One of the ways you know you struggle with imposter syndrome is you overestimate the exterior as an effort to hide the interior. Imposters are obsessed with exteriors. Hey, let's go back into Saul's life. I told you we're going to be hopping around between Moses and Saul. My guys, who teach us a lot about IS, imposter syndrome. First Samuel 16, uh, verse 6. Remember this moment. Uh, it's in Saul's story, but Saul's not uh, involved in this. Saul has actually... Um, been identified by the Lord and Samuel as no longer being anointed to be king. And God is going to choose a man after his own heart. Okay, so that's where we are. God sends Samuel um, to find the next king. All right. And he goes through the lineup of David's brothers. And if you know this story, you know what I'm about to read. Verses six and seven of 1 Samuel 16 say this. When the boys arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, he thought this, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Okay, Samuel didn't know anything about Eliab other than what he saw. And Samuel's first thought was, bah, based on looks, gotta be God's guy. Watch God's response to Samuel. It's a major teaching moment. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. For I've rejected Eliab. Because the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them, Preston. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Listen to me. If you measure you the way the world measures you, you will feel like an imposter as you try to live according to God's standard for you 
to be you. I never want to measure me the way the world measures me. Because the way the world's going to measure me is they're not, they will measure me off a 90 second soundbite. They, they will interpret my entire life and the posture of my heart through a 90 second soundbite. Another way to say it is they will measure me based solely off what they see in a very brief moment of my life. But this is what people do. They judge by what they can see, but what they can see is not even 1% of what could be seen and not even 0.00001% of what God can see about me or any person. God tells Samuel, I don't judge by the exterior. No, no, that, that ain't gonna cut it. When you study scripture, you see leaders throughout the centuries who put a little bit too much emphasis on the exterior. One of my heroes is an example of that, Solomon. Solomon and, and his palace and the wardrobe of his workers, everything he had was beautiful. And yet you read Ecclesiastes and homeboy's heart wasn't as beautiful as homeboy's stuff. <laughs> Why? I don't know, but for some reason it seemed like Solomon was a little bit more concerned with what could be seen then what couldn't be seen? That God makes sure to constantly remind us that he alone can see. He judges our hearts. Okay? So why do we struggle with imposter syndrome? Let me say it this way. You're always going to struggle with imposter syndrome if the only way you measure yourself is by the outside, the exterior. God says, nope. I don't do that, and I don't want you doing it either. The way the Lord taught it to me years ago was, Preston, all throughout your journey as a leader, uh, you're going to experience being misunderstood. And one of the reasons you're going to be misunderstood, and the reason every leader is misunderstood, is people are never going to have complete context for anything you do. And from time to time, they're going to make judgments on what you're doing based off of what they don't know. So here's what I want, Preston. I want you to get to a place where you don't look at others and go, I don't care what you think. Because I think that's what a lot of people think strength is. I don't care what you think. That's actually not strength. That's insecurity, which is failed. Here's what real strength is and how real strength talks. It's okay no matter what you think of me. It's okay, no matter how you see me. It's all right. I, I'm not gonna be able to fully explain me to you. And if you're willing to judge my entire life based off a very small moment in my life, that's up to you. It's okay. You see, this is one of the ways I overcame imposter syndrome. People who think they're imposters think way too much about what others are thinking about. And what the majority can only see is what's on the outside. So why would I listen to the narrative of the majority if they can't see enough of what's on the inside? Do you see what I'm saying? 
don't get caught up in that world. You've got to get to a place where you say, it's okay. No matter what you think of me, it's all right. Now, for some of you, you're like, Preston, I don't know how to do that. Wait till the end of this teaching. I promise you, the last three subpoints of, of this teaching are going to wreck you if you're thinking right now, oh, I, I, how do I do that, Preston? I, I can't do that. I don't know how to, how to get to a place where I can look at others and go, it's okay no matter what you think of me. I'm going to teach you, okay? And I believe the Lord's going to show you some things. But here's another reason we experience imposter syndrome. Because God puts us in situations beyond ourselves. You just got to know. Like I, I, one of my best friends, uh, I, I just watched this go down. Uh, one of the most confident people I've ever been around. Uh, never gets nervous. Never gets rattled. Um, and a while back, I saw him uh, more nervous than I've ever seen them. And it wasn't a bad thing. And then afterwards, as we processed it, part of what they were saying was, I was struggling with some imposter syndrome. I don't know how I'm where I am. I don't know. I, this is crazy. He knows it's God, but he, he was saying, this is well, 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 well beyond anything I think I'm even closely qualified for. And here's what I would say. If you don't have that thought every once in a while or feel that feeling, I don't know that you can say you're stepping into every room God is leading you to step into. If every room you walk into, you think you can dominate, something is off. And you don't need God. If your bent is just, no, I got this, no matter what room I'm in, no matter what I'm asked, I got this. Uh, I tried that. And a fall is guaranteed, scripture says. Trust me, from time to time, it's totally normal to have the thought, do I belong in this room? And why do I feel that? Because the Lord led me into a room where the only way I'm going to be able to pull off what happens in that room is if the God of the universe miraculously intervenes. He does that by design. Let me talk to the single mom for a sec. You got a new job. And you started this week. And you are hearing thoughts that sound something like this. I don't belong here. These people are going to find me out. They're going to find out how weak I am. They're going to find out how slow I am. They're going to find out how stupid I am. And then they're going to fire me. Okay, listen to me. That's not how God talks. It's not how he talks. God intentionally led you into a room that seems beyond all of your qualifications. And one of the reasons he did this on purpose was to teach you. Not only is he with you, but he alone is the reason for anything good which is done through you or by you. Back in Exodus 4, let's jump back into Moses. I read you verse 10, I read you verse 13. Let me show you God's response when Moses starts to argue with him. He, he's like, no, 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 I can't go into that room. I'm not qualified for that. Lord, you're asking me to do too much. Watch how God responds. Very matter of fact. The Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Watch verse 12. Now go. 
Moses, I know you're feeling disqualified. I qualify you. Now go. Stop wrestling with this, Moses. Yes, it's beyond your natural capability. But I'm with you. And I'm the one that makes man's mouth speak. And I'm the one that makes man's ears to hear. I'm with you. Now go. Because I will be with you as you speak. And I will instruct you in what to say. Do you know Exodus chapter 4 verse 12 is one of my swagger verses. I'll say it like that. God commissions Moses, even in his doubt, to go, then promises him, I will be with you as you do what I've called you to do. And not only will I be with you as you do what I've created you to do, I'm going to teach you how to do what I created you to do. God doesn't kick you out of the nest and say, go figure your calling out. God says, I'm with you. I created you for this. I'm sending you into this and I will teach you how to pull it all off. I've never been a senior pastor before. I've watched some great ones from behind the scenes, but I myself until 11 years ago had never done this job before. You don't think I struggle with some imposter syndrome every once in a while? The easiest time to experience imposter syndrome is at the beginning of doing something new God has asked you to do. It's totally normal. So don't act like something's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you when you have this thought. Now, if you dwell in it and linger in it, something can be wrong. But that initial thought, nothing's wrong. The reason we experience some imposter syndrome feelings from time to time is God intentionally puts us in rooms that are well beyond what we're qualified to pull off. God puts us in impossible situations so we will be forced to do what we do with him. I used to hate these difficult assignments and situations. Now, every time God says, now go, especially when I don't want to, and especially when I feel like I'm not qualified to do it, every time God says, Preston, now go. Now, I get excited every time I stand before the waters of the Red Sea. Here's why. Because I don't know what's about to happen next, but I know it's going to involve the miraculous power of God. So when he says, go, Preston, and do something you don't feel qualified to do, but I'm with you, I'll be with you as you do it, and I will teach you how to do it real time as you pull it off. Go. I get excited. I get excited. Because you never know what's going to happen with an underqualified human who walks with the perfectly qualified God. You don't know what's going down, but it's going to be memorable. It's totally normal for you to have the thought, I'm not qualified for this. I can't do this. It's a divine setup so that you will be forced to do what you're doing with the one who wants to be your best friend. Here's the third reason I believe we experience imposter syndrome, because we have an enemy. Our enemy does not want God's desired outcome. And one of the biggest things I believe the enemy says to God's children is that we are fakers. We're pretenders. 
We're not the genuine article. We just out, be out here faking it. In an effort to be authentic, we then give up anything, which might even seem like we're pretending. Let me help you understand why I believe Satan comes with this accusation of being a pretender or a faker. Satan's accusations of you being a faker are far more about him than they will ever be about you. Let me try and, and illustrate this, and then I'll show it to you in Scripture. Uh, have you ever dated someone who accused you of cheating? You ever navigated that path? And then, you know, in the beginning, you're like, I've never cheated on anyone I've dated. Why are you blaming me, accusing me of cheating? What, what have I done to make you think that I have cheated, let alone ever would cheat on you? I've experienced this before, many years ago. And here's what you learn. That person eventually gets found out to be a cheater. The reason they were accusing you of cheating is because they were. You see, part of the human condition when we're in an unhealthy place is to put our sins on others because we assume if we're doing it, everybody must be. This is a tell for Satan. This is how he rolls. Just because he calls you a cheater, so to speak, just because he calls you a faker doesn't mean you are one. Remember, he's a liar and everything he says is a lie. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 helps us see why Satan calls us the fakers. For even Satan disguises or masquerades himself as an angel of light. Satan is the premier pretender in all the earth. No one pretends as much or more than him. And so, just like a cheater accuses someone who doesn't cheat, who won't cheat for cheating, Satan accuses you of being a faker. I have heard this thought, oh my word, if I had a dollar for every time in the early days, I felt the enemy accusing me to my face, to myself for being a faker. I've stood on Robert's stage when I was a young man, uh, well before I felt I deserved to be on that stage. And I'd stand up just doing oversight or communion and I would hear the voice of the enemy say, you don't belong here. You're going to say something that's going to expose the fact that you are faking this whole thing. Preston, this isn't who you are. Okay, I didn't understand this at the time. But whatever lie the enemy throws at you, he's actually exposing <laughs> what the truth really is. <laughs> because whatever he says, the opposite is true. He's just trying to get me to buy his lie. But if you feel like an imposter, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take Satan's bait. You're going to believe his lie and make his lie your narrative. Oh, I don't belong here. I am going to be exposed. I am faking it. Nothing I do is actually real. 
And I kind of dwelled in that for a little bit. But once I really began to learn, oh, I'm not a cheater. It's just that the person who's accusing me of cheating is the chief cheater. Oh, I'm, I'm not a faker. I can't tell you how many times he threw that lie in my face. I'm a faker. Because remember, when I was young, I lied a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And so that was one of the things he used against me as I became a declarer of the truth in vocational ministry. Preston, you can't do this job. You're going to be exposed as a liar. Everything you're doing is a lie. I, I had to battle this. And unfortunately, I deserved it because for, for a good chunk of my life up to that point, I was a liar. I was lying. I was faking it. It's part of the reason why I don't want to live that way ever again, because it, it's a hard way to live. I don't want to make the enemy's job easier. And one of the ways to make his job easier is to believe all of his lies. He's going to try and accuse you, convince you that you are a faker, that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. Listen, part of the reason he's doing it is he just wants you to fully give in to living the life of a fraud. That's why he tries to lie to you about you, telling you that's what you are. Don't take his bait. I wish I could get to the last three sub points because right now I really want to cover them, but we still got more ground to cover, okay? Question number three, as we talk about imposter syndrome, what are the dangers of imposter syndrome? Okay, let's go back to Saul. The first danger, uh, and, and there's a more exhaustive list. This is not exhaustive. We don't have enough time for that. But the first danger I want you to see of imposter syndrome is you downplay God's requirements for being you. Okay, let me show it to you in Saul's life, and then I'll, I'll uh, show it to you in your life. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, here's the setup. Um, Saul and his men are waiting to go to war. Samuel, the man of God, is supposed to come and present the sacrifice so that their endeavors will be blessed. All right? And a, a seven-day period of time goes by, and Saul makes the choice to transition from being the leader of God's people to being the priest, performing the priestly duties, which was Samuel's job. But I think one of the reasons Saul took matters into his own hands is because he downplayed himself. And when you downplay yourself, you downplay your responsibilities. And when you downplay your responsibilities, it means you'll be more willing to take matters into your own hands. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 7. Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Remember, they're waiting to go to battle. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Here's one of the problems with imposter syndrome. If you don't take yourself seriously enough, and I don't mean in an ungodly way, I mean in a, you'll see at the end of this teaching what kind of way, but if you don't take yourself seriously enough, you won't take your responsibilities seriously enough. And if you don't take your responsibilities seriously enough, then everything you look at will be like, ah, it's no big deal. I'll just take matters into my own 
hands. No, no. You have a responsibility to be who God made you to be and to do you the way God created you to do you. That's a responsibility. Your responsibility isn't to do what I do. Your responsibility is to do what God created you to do. But an imposter says, well, I'm faking it essentially doing what I'm doing. I can fake what that guy does because this is what's needed. So I'll just do it myself. It, It doesn't seem like a big deal, possibly on paper, but this is a huge deal. When you take matters into your own hands, you start doing things you're not anointed to do. Look in verse 10. This was all a setup. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. It was a test. Saul went out to meet and welcome Samuel. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? Watch Saul's response. Verse 11, Saul says, I saw my men scattering from me and you didn't arrive when you said you would blame. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the inference here is what I thought the godly thing to say was, I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself. Before you came. If you don't take you seriously. You won't take what God asks of you. Seriously. Here's the thought process. It's no big deal. It's just little old me. I'm no big deal. Therefore. This is no big deal. What's the big deal? Can I tell you? I've gotten into more trouble asking that question, what's the big deal with this? Typically, that's my flesh's way of trying to excuse doing the exact opposite of what the Spirit's asking me to do. What's the big deal? That's essentially what Saul is saying. I, I, I'm not trying to be the priest. I'm just trying to show the Lord that he matters to me. No, no, no. God's man told you Wait until I get there, and then this is what we'll do so that we'll bring the blessing of God as you go to battle. And I think part of the reason that Saul did this is because he didn't take himself seriously enough. He still was the hiding in the baggage Saul in his heart. And he had a, well, just little old me. I know I'm the king, but this is just me. This ain't no big deal. In fact, I can convince myself this is actually the right thing. If God doesn't ask you to do it, it's the wrong thing. If you don't take yourself seriously, you won't take the responsibilities God has laid before you seriously, which means you'll be willing to do things that aren't your responsibility, which you don't have the anointing to do, and you will be less willing to do the responsibilities he's bestowed upon you using the anointing he set aside for you simply because you don't take yourself seriously enough. You don't worship yourself. You just take the responsibility to be you seriously. Saul messed this thing up. This is one of the dangers. If you feel like you're an imposter, then, then 
you will not take the responsibility seriously. And you'll end up not doing what he asked you to do and doing what he asked you not to do. This is what imposters do. And I don't ever want you to become one. Here's the second danger of imposter syndrome. You hope you can fake it until you make it. Buddy, can I teach you some stuff about fake it until you make it? I've literally heard this used as advice to young leaders. Oh, bro, you got to fake it until you make it. Nope, nobody fully belongs there in the beginning. You just got to fake it till you make it. Because otherwise, you'll be waiting outside that room for a lot longer than you want to be waiting. So just fake your way in. This is the dumbest advice I have ever heard. And I actually got it. And as I watched others navigate the rooms that God would one day lead me to walk into and lead, I watched people fake it. They could talk a big game, but they could not back it up. And some of them ended up losing their jobs or losing a contract as a result of it. Fake it until you make it is not the way of our king. Our king is the truth. And there is no faking in him at all. There is no shadow because he is the light. We don't be faking stuff in this kingdom. And anybody who's told you to fake it until you make it, you, you need to pray more the next time they give you advice. Let me, let me give you a perspective of fake it until you make it. There's a word for it. Disintegration. And this habit of faking it until you make it creates a muscle of hypocrisy. And let me show you how Jesus felt and feels about us. When we exercise the muscle of hypocrisy, of faking it. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. He literally calls them hypocrites to their face. Ones who are faking it. You fakers. Jesus says, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, you're filthy. Full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. In other words, you can't even see it. You faked it for so long, you can't even see what's true about you. And then Jesus gives them some very biblically Gangster advice. First, wash the inside of the cup. Deal with what can't be seen by the masses. Wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Here's one of the things I believe Jesus is pointing at. Disintegration. He's saying, I know it looks like one cup, but there's an outside of the cup and there's an inside of the cup. And you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you fakers are living one way, but actually another type of person than the way you're presenting yourself. Another way to say it, you're living two different lives. 
You are two different people. You are one person in public and you are a completely different person in private. I was that man. In the early days of of figuring out the call of my life, I absolutely was a hypocrite. I I live one way out, out here, but privately, I lived a completely different way. Can I tell you what I learned? If you choose the path of being two different people, one of you is guaranteed to fall. That right there, in my opinion, is the strongest one-liner of the entire teaching. And that one cost me big time. Part of what I always want to do with you is pass on what costs me the most to learn. Because I want to save you the time. I want to save you the, the mistakes. I want to save you the punishments. I don't want you to have to navigate what I navigated to learn what I've learned. So I want to give it to you. But understand, I'm not giving it to you for free. It cost me much, and now I hand it to you, and you are to be responsible with this truth. We, I, I, I will say this. I grew up in an era of the megachurch where in my world, and I know you may not be in the church world, Uh, for employment. But in my world, uh, over the last 25 years, the church exploded. When I was growing up, a megachurch was any church over 2,000. Well, now a megachurch isn't a megachurch until they hit 10,000. That's at least 5x increase. So, So the church exploded during my lifetime. But one of the reasons I believe we're dealing with a generation, and I want to be very sensitive with this. I'm not throwing stones at anyone. I'm just giving my perspective. One of the reasons I think we might be dealing with a generation who's deconstructing their faith is they grew up in homes of believers who were content to live two different lives, a public one and a private one. And the children of these people saw the private one And then saw the faking in public. And this generation desiring purity of heart, desiring authenticity, said, I don't want anything to do with that fake life. Now, was there some judgment in that? Sure. There always is when we talk like that. But is there some truth in it? Yes. If you're content To live as two different people, one of you is guaranteed to eventually fall. Instability is created in an atmosphere of incongruence. What does James 1, 8 say? One of my favorite verses. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Some, Some translations paint the picture like this. A person stuck between two opinions. Well, for this conversation, let's say it like this. A person stuck between living as two different people, one public and one private, is unstable in all their ways. Instability is always created in an atmosphere of incongruence. Listen to me. I would rather, when we get together face-to-face for coffee, I would rather you puke your guts up and be honest about where you're at than lie to my face, put your, your best mask on, And then when you go back in private, go back to doing the exact opposite of what you represented to me. 
That is the definition of incongruence. Set a goal in 2024 to be more congruent than you ever have been in your life. Whatever is private, that's what's public. And if you don't want something to be public, then don't tolerate it privately. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We need to stop living two separate lives. Here's how I uh, kind of say it in my line of work. How I pray is how I preach. How I pray is how I preach. If you want to know how I pray when I'm alone with the Lord, just watch how I preach. Sometimes it's sweet and tearful and humble and vulnerable and raw, beautiful. Sometimes it's strong and aggressive and authoritative and petition and declaration. How I pray is how I preach. When I work, and I, again, I know this is my world, extrapolate it and place it over your world. But in my world, when I'm helping young preachers, I ask them, how do you pray? Is how you preach the same way you pray? Like, do you talk with that same tongue? Polished, everything is perfect, kind of, kind of a vibe? Is that, is that how you pray? I don't think it is. However you pray is how you should preach. Another way to say it, for our conversation, no matter what field you find yourself living in in this season of your life, how you live in private must be how you live in public. And if you don't want it to be seen in public, don't do it in private. This is one of the dangers of imposter syndrome. We believe that the path to success and promotion is fake it until you make it. No, no, no. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You want to fake it? One of the faster ways to fall is to fake your way to success. Failure is around the corner for anyone who fakes their way to success. That brings us to the fourth and final question. Preston, how do I overcome it? So I realize I struggle with imposter syndrome. How do I overcome this? A couple of things and we'll be done. First, emphasize obedience. Don't emphasize ambition. Emphasize obedience. I didn't get here because I wanted to be here. I am here because he wanted me to be here. That therefore means any room he wants me in, he wants to anoint me for. I don't experience a measure of angst when I walk into the rooms he leads me to walk into. I just obey my way into the room. And then all the pressure's off. I don't need to know what to do in the room. I just need to obey. And sometimes he says, Preston, you need to speak up. Sometimes he says, you need to be quiet this whole meeting. Great. I don't need to know what to do because I already know what to do. Obey. If you emphasize obedience, you will minimize the feelings of being an imposter in any and every room you walk into. Just obey. John 12, verse 26. Jesus said, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. 
because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. This is the picture I get every room I walk into before I walk into it. Jesus, I'm just following you in here. This is what you asked of me. You're walking into this room before me. You are the leader of the room. You are the most important one in the room. You are the most powerful one in the room. And I am just following you because that's what you told me. If I'm going to be one of your servants, I must follow you. I'm just following you into this room. And whatever you want from me in this room, I want to give you. And whatever you don't want from me, I don't want to bring to you. Emphasize obedience. If ambition is what gets you into a room, then your effort and your achievement is what will have to keep you in that room. But when obedience is what gets you into a room, you know what's responsible or who's responsible for keeping you in that room? The one who asked you to go into it. I don't need to worry about being in any room that God asked me to go into. I just have to worry about my obedience. I'm not doing what I'm doing because I want to. I'm doing what I'm doing because he asked me to. And my response is to obey. Here's the second way to overcome imposter syndrome. Step into the room selflessly. Don't walk into a room selfishly. If, If you walk into a room fixated on what you can get from being in the room. You're already set up to fail. I see this all of the time. Oh, I've never gotten to be in the boardroom. I've never gotten to sit in this room. What, I'm going to be able to bring up this. I'm going to be able to get this. And this is going to give me access to this. If that's how you walk into a room, you are set up to fail during your time in that room. Here's the verse that I try and be mindful of when I walk into a room, whether I'm viewed to be the one leading it or viewed to be someone contributing in it. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, love each other with genuine affection, like actually love people in the room and take delight in honoring them, each other. Honor them, Preston. Let me give you the picture. You know how hard it is to fall when you lift others above yourself? Who has more to lose when they fall? The person who goes higher up. Do you know how hard it is to fall when you lift others above yourself? When your motive in any room is him and them, it's exponentially easier to stand in any room for any amount of time. Here's what helps me feel safe when I walk into a room that I feel a little underqualified to be in. It doesn't matter how it goes for me in this room. As long as I can help you while we're both in this room. That's how I see the leaders cut. Somebody asked me the other day, why, why do you think God's blessing the leaders cut? Well, hopefully he is, and it seems like he is, but I'll tell you my perspective of why I think he might be blessing what we're doing. Because I'm not in this room for what I can get out of it, genuinely. However long God has me in this room with you together, My heart is to help you as much as I can while we are both in this room. My heart is you. And I don't care what I can get in this room. That's on God. 
what happens with me outside of the room as a result of what happens in the room, that's on God. What's on me is what I do while I'm in the room. If you've ever been nervous in a room you felt underqualified to be in, here's something to remember. Nerves come when I care too much about how I look. If I walk into a room selfishly, I'm going to be focused on me and how I come across. I will tell you from experience, typically I get nervous when I think too much about how you're going to perceive me. That's a, that's a rocky way to live. Walk into every room God leads you into selflessly, not selfishly. It's a lot easier to steward a room when you're selfish, selfless, rather than when you're selfish. Here's the last thing, and these are my favorite subpoints of the whole thing. Uh, if you want to overcome imposter syndrome, you're going to have to understand your identity. And now we get to the swagger, wagger, wagger, swagger verses. This is, this has taken me. Okay, if you made it all the way in this episode, gangster, by the way, because I know some of y'all be cheating and, and you're like, I don't know if this is for me. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. God wants to speak to you. But if you made it to this part, I, I think it's going to be more than worth it because here's how I really want to help you in 2024 as you navigate some really big boy and big girl rooms that you on paper seem to be underqualified to step into, let alone lead. If you're going to understand your identity, you need to nail down these three things. Number one, when we talk about your identity, you have to remember, I am his child. I am the son. I am the daughter of the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. I am his child. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who believed in Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Why is it important to remember that you are God's child? Because children have a different relationship with their father than any other humans on the earth. And a father has a different relationship with his children than any other humans on the earth. Think about it. I have three children, possibly about to be four, and we treat them like the fourth. My four kids. I have a different relationship with them than I do with you. I protect my children in a way I'll never protect you. I want you to be protected, but it's not my job to protect you. I protect my children. And second, I provide for my children. This is what daddies do. This is what mommies do. A father has a different relationship with his children than any other humans on the earth. Okay, my shoulders get pinned back when I start to think about that I am the son of the God of the universe. He is my protector. He goes before me and he is my rear guard. He protects me on my left and on my right. He clears every room before I walk into it and no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Why? Because my daddy is the God of the universe. I am his son. He protects me, but also he provides for me. My father is my source. He is my provider. You want to overcome imposter syndrome? Settle the fact that you're not just a follower of Jesus. I am a child of God. 
scripture even goes on. And if we are his son or his daughter, we are also his heir. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus, scripture says. If that doesn't give you a little swagger, a little godly swagger to walk into a room and go, yeah, on paper, it may, may seem like I don't belong here, but I'm the son, I'm the daughter of God most high. And I belong anywhere he leads me into. Hard to walk in like this when you think about who your daddy is and your relationship to him. Second thing you really need to be clear in as it relates to your identity, if you're going to overcome imposter syndrome is you're not only his child, you are his friend. John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves. He's saying this to his disciples. Because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, think about this. This is the son of God talking. You are my friends. Since I've told you everything the father told me. Okay, so I am the son of the God of the universe, but I'm also his best friend and he is my best friend. Why is that significant? And how does this help us overcome imposter syndrome? Think about it. My friends pursue me to the extent they love me. Emmanuel, God with us. He's not just God for me. He's the God who is so obsessed with me as a friend that he says, I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you. Never, Preston. I don't leave my friends. I don't leave my beloved. I am Emmanuel, God with you. I've deposited my Holy Spirit on the inside of you. As a snapshot of your inheritance, this is what I give my children, my best friends. Think about this. People think they're more special. The more special their friend or friends are determined to be. If that person, if you have a friend who's famous, if you're to be honest, every once in a while you probably have the thought, wow, that person is really special. They're one of the most famous people on the earth in my day. And they want to be friends with me. So if they're that special and they have a special relationship with me, unlike any other relationship they have on the earth, then I must be more special than I thought. Listen, if you're ever down on you, why don't you remind yourself the God who came down to chase you and do what must be done to hold your hand forever? Not going to lie. Every once in a while when I need it, when I need a little bit of swagger because I'm standing before the waters of the Red Sea and, and I don't know how this is going to go. And I feel disqualified and I want to turn around and run. Sometimes I just remind myself. Know who my best friend is? I look at that water. And in my heart, I say, do you know who my best friend is? He's not just my daddy. He's my best friend. And he's so my best friend. He promised he would never leave me. And so I stand before the waters of this Red Sea. 
with my friend who just so happens to be my father. Here's the third thing you got to remember. If you're going to be clear on your identity in such a way that you overcome ever feeling like an imposter, you have to remind yourself, I am his choice. I am his child. I am his friend. And I am his choice. The next words in John 15, after what I just read you, Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I want to drill down because I know some of us will look at that and apply it only to salvation. But I want you to see our calling is a choice God made to give us, to bestow upon us. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But even before I was born, Paul says, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Look at that. Before he was even born, he was chosen for something. He was God's plan A for something very specific, which he would not bestow upon any other human. How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God says, I knew you, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. I chose you and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, you're going to have to say some hard things to some very hard-headed people, but I want you to know I chose you for this. Now let me personalize it for you. So that whatever rooms you walk into this year where you feel underqualified to stand in that room, let alone steward a moment in it. Let me apply all of this and stick it to you. There's something God wanted to do in the earth in the day in which we live. And his eyes searched to and fro long before time began. Every heart of every human who would be alive in our day and he found one person whom he could trust to pull a very specific thing off. He found you. You were chosen before you were ever born to do something God will never ask anyone else to do. It doesn't make you better than anyone but it does make you different than everyone. Settle it. Enemy's going to try and throw imposter syndrome at you this year. It's not a bad thing. You just need to know how to combat it. I am his child. I am his friend. And I am his choice to walk into this room and do what no one else in this room is going to be asked by God to do attack a spirit of imposter syndrome by being settled in who God is and who he's made you to be and what he's asked you to do that he wants to partner with you to pull off let me pray over you God as we step into this new year I pray you'd literally rip open the windows of heaven 
I asked for a shaking on the earth. And I know I might be in the minority. I asked for a shaking on the earth in the day in which we live. So that that which cannot be shaken will be exposed. The enemy, your enemy God, is trying to shake everything. But God, you will never be shaken. And those who stand with you, holding you by the hand, must not be shaken because you're not. You are our strength. You are our shield. You are our source. You are our heart's desire. Whatever you desire from each of us this year, Holy Spirit, will you do whatever must be done inside us as we step outside of ourselves, fully relying on you to pull off whatever you are desiring to be done on the earth through us. God, would you remind each of us every day of this year, we are your children. We are your friends. And we are your choice. No matter what room we find ourselves stepping into, Spirit of the living God, may we step in humbly, selflessly, and obediently. And as we stand before the waters of the Red Sea, may we do so, not with confidence in ourselves, because we are not qualified to part the waters of that sea, but may we stand before those waters with all confidence in our God because he alone is qualified to part those waters. May we see miracles this year. God, would you prepare us for them? Would you help us do the work in order to prepare to step into them and steward them in Jesus name? Amen. Amen. I love it. I am praying for you. I'm praying for this year and your involvement in God's plan on the earth. May God divinely enable you in ways he never has before to do things he's never asked you to do heretofore. This is going to be a wild year. Buckle up. And remember, you're his choice. I love you so much. God bless you. I can't wait to see you next week. <laughs>